Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, good morning. Y'all ready to go? If you're ready to go, you got a Bible in your hand or your phone in your hand with a Bible app. If you need a Bible, there's one on the chair in front of you. Grab it. I want you to open to the book of Colossians. A couple weeks ago, we, um, we started this whole re- church reimagined. We were looking at the vision of this church. And you know what happens with visions at a church? They go on a binder and they go on a shelf and no one ever remembers it. <laughs> so we are at least four times a year, uh, we're pulling out this vision to say, Keep it in front of your face all the time. And so here's what we're inviting you to do. Uh, there's our second church reimagined gathering where we're reimagining what church could be and should be. And so we want you to be a part of shaping that vision with us, joining that vision, knowing how to participate in it, and also celebrate the victories. Like, how, how are we winning in this thing? And how is God winning in this? And so um, I would invite you to join us, not this Wednesday, because no one plans anything the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, right? It's the following Wednesday. So if you call this church my church, like someone says, hey, where do you go to church? You're like, oh, Church on the Hill, that's my church. Then you should be there, because I want you to join the vision. I want you to help shape the vision. And I want you to hear how, how God's winning in people's lives, okay? That, that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is this, in your program, you'll see that on the very back page, we put something new in there because last week we talked about this message and, oh gosh, I I don't even know if I should test you on this about the gospel. So, oh, some of you were here. Yes. Yes. Remember, uh, the gospel so great that it's worth our, yes, oh. Just warmed my heart. Y'all remembered. We talked about our goal was this. Um, we want to do a whole village transformation in Guatemala. It's a three-year process. The first year is $35,000. We want to raise that by the end of the year. And I would invite you to give towards that sacrificially. We also are doing this, uh, our life transformation, which is what this church is about. It's about God transforming lives. We're looking at $135,000 between here and the end of the year. That, those notes will just keep being in the program every single week so you can see how we're doing at that. I would invite you, if this church is your church, to give sacrificially. I think that's what the gospel calls us to. All right, I want to bring up something fun for you. There's a guy in our church, his name's Tim Gordon, and he doesn't know I'm doing this and he'll probably hate me for it, but that's okay, he'll get over it. He's right now participating in the Arizona Ironman. You know what that is, right? It's a 140.6 mile race. So it's two miles of swimming and it's uh, 112 miles of biking. And then if that's not enough, they throw a marathon in at the end of that. So um, I've been tracking him this morning. He, uh, he's at about mile 40 on the bike right now. Um, I've never preached before with my phone in my back pocket. This is going to be weird. Here's the goal. Finish. That's it. Just, just finish. This race is going to take him somewhere around 16 hours. He's going to finish when it's dark, right? Um, the goal is to finish. Now, you can get distracted in a whole lot of different ways. The first is this. You could have a great start. 
Tim could start this race and gets out of the water and he's like, woo, killed it. Look, I'm first. And then he has nothing left to finish the race. See, the Christian life is similar to that. It matters how you start, but it matters actually more how you finish. Because you've met people who started the Christian life well and flamed out along the way. The second thing is this, uh, to finish this race, Tim is going to have to stay on course. Could you imagine if there were signs along the race path that said, make a right turn here? And what if those signs were placed there to actually deceive you so you didn't finish the race to get you off track? There's actually all kinds of things in the Christian life that point us in different directions that are actually intended to deceive us to get us off track. Why do I bring this up? This is fun. I'm just praying for Tim today, kind of rooting him on all day long and just praying that God gives him strength. It's, it's fun. And to be honest, I, I think it's a great spiritual experience for him as well because you learn so much about yourself when you face adversity. But I bring this up because of this. The Christian life, it's about finishing with Jesus. And it's about walking with him all along the way. But there's so many Christians that get deceived. And we're in this um, series in the book of Colossians that we called Core Sample. And Core Sample is like the foundation on the, that you're building your life upon. How are you building your Christian life? And is it really on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ? Because there's some people who are building stuff in their life and they're getting deceived and they're building something that is not actually with Jesus it's not actually the Christian life, and sometimes they think they are. And Paul's actually concerned about this in the letter of Colossians. And he, we're going to talk about two ways that Christians are deceived. Uh, they're deceived by either the legalistic life or the indulgent life. Let, let's see if we can make sense of this. Here we are. If you've got your uh, scriptures open, I'm on Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 2. It says this. And I love it because Paul states right up front, hey, this is the goal of why I'm writing this letter. He says this, my goal is that they, this church, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may underline that. No one may deceive you. Because I'm going to ask the question today, have you been deceived by fine-sounding arguments? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, there's the start. Can you continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness? Now, in order to understand all of the complexity that Paul is talking about, God gave me a diagram this week. Open up your program real quick. Take a look at it. If you're on the app, you're at home watching this, and you have the app open on your phone, it's not going to work well for you. And this, this diagram, I, I'm hoping that this makes sense. The two concerns for Paul are the legalistic life and the indulgent life. So let me just ask you this. Before you ever became a Christian, was your life more legalistic or more indulgent? And let me explain what I mean by that. Because for Paul, he's like, my life was totally legalistic. Let me just read to you how Paul describes his life. It's in Philippians chapter 3. Don't turn there. I want you to stay in Colossians, okay? He writes this. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, meaning they're behaving by the rules, he says, I have more reason for that confidence. And then he gives his long list about religiously how he was a rule follower. Here's what he writes. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, meaning he was, he was perfect. As for zeal, as for energy to follow Christ and, and doing the things above and beyond, he's like, I was actually persecuting the Christian church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, if you remember this, when Paul started his life, he wasn't Paul, he was Saul, and he was this Jew who was the best rule follower according to him. This legalistic life that he lived, maybe you'll identify with it a little bit. Let me tell you what the legalistic life sounds like. I have to be perfect to be loved. If I fail, God won't love me and I'm not worthy of love. This phrase, maybe you heard it from your parents. You better follow the rules or else. See, legalism is driven by rules. Legalism is actually driven by fear. See, legalism doesn't actually know what to do with relationships and love because they're only focused on following the rules. See, legalism, when it's religious, doesn't actually understand God's affection for you. Because when I tell you God loves you, what goes through your mind is, no, there's all these ways that I'm actually unlovable. Just question, how'd you grow up? Do any of those sound familiar? Now, you may have not grown up with um, religious legalism. Maybe you grew up with academic legalism. Maybe you, um, you were told you have to succeed at all cost. Grades are everything. Maybe it's Cultural legalism, right? It's so funny when I start saying these things, people start looking at each other like, that was you. (laughs) Cultural legalism is this. It's stay in line. Don't embarrass the family. Fulfill your parents' expectations. And maybe it was Christian legalism. You better do the right thing or God will get you. See, legalism, it can be marked by a sense of honor, in your culture, but you can't have honor without a sense of also shame. And oftentimes, shame is the thing that keeps us in line. But it's interesting. Uh, Paul goes on to write this when he talks about his whole life of legalism. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he writes this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's like, I became a Christian, and all the religious rule following I did, he's like, it's a total loss. Later on, he would write that he considers it dung, crap. I'm just quoting Paul. Don't get mad at me. Paul discovered that his legalism was worthless. Here's why. It's trapped by unreachable approval. And some of you will identify with this because of the standards that were brought to you. It's all about the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you feel a sense of unworthiness. There's a sense of shame attached to it. And you get this because maybe you grew up in this. But out of legalism, Paul meets Jesus, right? Now, the Colossians, they're actually on the total other end of the spectrum. They're not about legalism. They actually grew up in a household, probably a household of indulgence, because most of them were Greeks. And let me just show you about the indulgent life. In chapter 3 of Colossians, look in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 5. He writes this, he says, I want you to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. I mean, those cravings that you had inside. 
And then he lists a bunch of them, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's like, these things don't fit the Christian life. Then he writes this, he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. See, the Greek culture wasn't about these really tight rules. It was actually about the indulgent life because the indulgent life is driven by pleasure. Maybe you grew up in a family like this. It was all about fun. It was all about uh, having a, a good time. It was all about doing whatever we could do to not be trapped by our pain. Here, here's the problem. When pleasure is your highest goal, it doesn't know what to do with pain. And so when we have pain in our life, and everyone has pain in their life, and what we do is instead of dealing with our pain, we cover it over with pleasure. And you know what that is? When you have pain, you cover it over with pleasure. That's the life of addiction. You're addicted to whatever pleasure you have. And if you think like, oh, dude's talking about alcohol and drugs. I'm like, no, no, it could be shopping. Oh. Could be, yeah. I mean, it could be the pleasure of being approved by people. When pleasure is the center of our life, though, it's the indulgent life. So let me just ask you this quick. What was your background? Maybe it was before you met Christ. Like, how'd you grow up? And you're thinking of one of two things. Either my parents were like this, either indulgent or legalistic. And you either adopted their belief or you rebelled against it, right? If you adopted their belief, here's the horrifying thought. You turned out like your parents. Or maybe that's a good thing. You love your parents. You respect your parents. You're like, oh, I turned out like my parents. It's great. Now, if your parents were legalistic, maybe you just rebelled against it and you rebelled to the indulgent life. Maybe though your parents, it was all about pleasure and indulgence. And you saw it and went, it was such a waste. I saw the emptiness of it. And you switched over to the other side of being legalistic. Now, can I just say this? Um, We're not here to blame everything on our parents, okay? I'm sure you have a therapist for that. But what was your life like before you met Jesus? Was it legalistic? Or was it indulgent? And I will give a disclaimer, like, (laughs) life isn't just indulgent or legalistic. I think it is the tension that we live in, but there's a wide swath in the middle. And can I say for, for parenting, just so that we're super clear, having expectations for your kids is actually healthy. Not accepting their excuses for laziness, that's actually healthy. But when we get so consumed by that, it can be legalism. Withholding love and affection because of lack of performance. Oh, that's legalism. Having fun with your kids is healthy. But when the whole goal of your family's life is to either give your kid pleasure or parents having pleasure, it's an indulgent life. In this diagram, both of these people come to Jesus, right? You got one on one side and one on the other, and they both come to Jesus. Take a look at that. Paul writes about this. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, he's talking about they all got saved. And it's so weird because I didn't expect the word Lord to be there. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as, here's what I would think, and if this is a salvation moment, you received him as Savior, right? Like, like he saved you. I don't know if you know this, but in the book of Acts, that's the story of the early church and how they, once they met Jesus and once they were saved, this is how the church grew, this is how they functioned. Do you know this, that the word Savior only shows up in the book of Acts two times? 
Uh, The word saved actually shows up in the book of Acts 12 times. You know how many times the word Lord shows up in the book of Acts? Over a hundred times. Why? Because the story of the church is how do we live life with Jesus as our boss, with Jesus as our Lord, with him in control of our lives, asking the question, I, I know this is cliche, but what would Jesus do? Like, what would Jesus want me to do? How would he want me to make decisions? How would he want me to live? So today, when we become Christians, we're not just inviting Jesus to save us. Jesus, save me, forgive me, be my savior. We're actually inviting him. Would you be the Lord of my life? Would you be my boss? Would you be the, see, that's an amen right there. Here's my big point. This is where the difficulty comes because there's two ways to be deceived. Go back to that diagram. Look at it real quick. The indulgent life, the legalistic life. Then all of a sudden they come to faith in Jesus and Jesus, your Lord. But then from there it branches off. The center is this life that Jesus walks, that you walk with Jesus in. But on one side, sometimes we return to this legalistic life. Sometimes we return to the indulgent life. Like, just that's how we were raised, and so we just went back to it. Well, watch watch me in this for for just a minute. In in that diagram, maybe you started life in this indulgent phase, and then you met Jesus. You're like, I know that just seeking pleasure is such a waste of time. And so you switched gears way over to this side. Now you're just a legalistic Christian, and you don't know what it means to be free in Christ. Maybe you were legalistic before you met Jesus and now you got saved and somehow you switched over like, oh, there's just freedom in Christ. I can do anything I want. That's a lie. You're deceived. The lordship of Jesus is, Jesus, what would you have me do? How would you have me think? How would you have me speak? How would you have me? See, what we believe about the Christian life, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, it changes how we live, it changes how we love, it changes how we work, it changes how we give, it changes how we purchase, it changes how we save, it changes how we do everything. So here's this fear, that somewhere in this direction, Christians might be deceived. And this is what Paul writes about. Here it is. Christians deceived by legalism. Look at verse 4 in chapter 2. I tell you this so that no one may be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. And then he goes into the arguments. Look down at verse 16. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of rules there. And there were some people that were known as Judaizers. And he was trying to say this, uh, there's going to be people out there that try to take all the Old Testament regulations and make it a part of your Christian life. Don't let them. That's actually the old covenant that God had with people. The New Testament is the new covenant that's found in Christ. The part of the, the, the Jewish culture was this. They didn't just go by the Old Testament. They actually created a whole long of rules and lists, over 300 of them, that said if you're really a good Jew, you would follow these. He goes on to say this, don't let anyone who delights in false humility, the worship of angels, disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. So some clarity here. Um, He just doesn't want you to be shackled by the legalistic rule-following life. Because the Christian life isn't about rules. It's about relationship. 
We'll get to that in just a moment. Look at verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle this. Don't taste that. Don't touch These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Some religious people with really good intentions were deceived. Can I be honest? Some of y'all grew up in churches like this. Don't play those cards. Those cards, they're the devil. (laughs) I mean, churches have all kinds of stuff that they try to promote. I I would just say this. What's the Bible say about that? I mean, do you know this well enough to know when there's a fraudulent, deceptive command out there that someone puts ahead of a relationship with Jesus? That's why we, at our church, we just value what we call tattered Bibles, that our Bibles are so worn out, that our minds are sharp. When something false comes in, we recognize it. And, and I will say this. Um, if there is a religious group that holds another book as equal to the Bible so that they're telling you, hey, no, you you don't just need the Bible. You actually need this other book to know how to to have God love you. Can I just tell you this? It's actually a false religion. It's deceiving people. If there's another book that says, beyond the Bible, you have to read this so that you know that you have the wisdom to follow God. I I usually don't... um, kind of go after certain things, but I, certain groups, but I, I'm just going to because of, I don't want you to be deceived. And I'll just be really honest. I mean, the Book of Mormon has this thing called the Word of Wisdom. They got like three other books other than the Bible that are like, these are all equally inspired books. You have to follow these. And the, the truth is, you can't hold another book equal to the 66 books of the Old and the New Covenant and pretend like there, there's wisdom in it. it it's not. It's false. Um, I, I have people in our church who um, grew up Mormon and uh, recognized this, got saved. And if, if you're trying to figure this out, um, they'd, happy to be, they'd be happy to have a discussion with you so that you have clarity on this. I mean, think of Jehovah's Witnesses that will try to um, say, oh, no, 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 we're Christians and this is the Bible, but they're actually deceived and they're going to lead you astray because their salvation is not in Jesus by his death and resurrection alone. I'm risking not being nice and not being affirming to everyone right now. But, and I recognize that. And I, I know it might be hard to hear because maybe you grew up in a family that they believe something different than what the Bible says or they grew up Mormonism or in Mormonism or in the Jehovah's Witness. And it's hard to say, you know what, that's wrong. But it doesn't do us any good to have really good intentions and love if we don't speak the truth. Because that faith doesn't actually lead to salvation. Mormonism is based off of earning your salvation, and you cannot earn your salvation. Christ earned it for you on the cross. So I hope you don't think I'm being snarky or mean. I just care so deeply that somewhere in the race of this Christian faith that you don't get deceived and make a left-hand turn and you don't finish with Jesus. I say it out of care and love and compassion. You with me? We okay? Um, 
deceived by legalism. Uh, let me switch gears for just a moment to talk about I th- something that I think might actually be more prevalent in the Christian church today, and it's being deceived by indulgence. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. We've read this before, but he said, I want you to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. How does this work among us today? Um, see, back in Paul's day, there were some religious people. They taught, that, um, they taught this. Life is, there's like this dualism in life. There's your body, and it's all the physical stuff in the world. But the Christian life is spiritual. You have a spiritual relationship with Jesus. So your body doesn't actually matter. It's just about your heart, like, it just matters about your spiritual relationship with Jesus. Therefore, and this is where it gets twisted, you can do anything you want with your body as long as your heart loves Jesus. If you actually read the New Testament, there's an awful lot of statements like this that are like, well, there is sexual immorality. There's a way that people behave through sex, and that's not, that's not a spiritual act. It, it is, but it's actually a physical act. That he's like, there's immorality, there's a moral way to express that, and an immoral way. And the dumb thing about the church over historical periods is that they pick a, a few things about sexual immorality to harp on. And we've done the culture a huge disservice. And this isn't in my notes, but I'm I'm going here. The church historically has shamed the homosexual community to such a degree. But I'm not sure that they've actually looked at other areas of their life of lust and been so offended by that. Or infidelity. Or pornography. Historically, they've looked at the LGBTQ community and just been like, oh, terrible. All of it falls in this category of sexual immorality. I know, again, this might be offensive to you, but maybe no one's actually ever helped you walk through the scriptures in this, that when God created the first man, he looked at man and he just said, it is not good that man is alone. And he brought a woman to the man and he said, it is very good. God created us with our identities attached to our gender. And we're not the same. We're different. And in this world, I know that there's people who just want to pick. I, I, I identify more with this or identify more with that. You, you identify with, well, God said this, I created you unique. And we just want to say, oh, there's just an expression of however I want. There, there's, a, um, there's a saying in the book of Judges that goes like this. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's the world we live in today. And by the way, I'm saying this not to shame anybody. I just want there to be clarity. There's not a single example of an approved relationship outside of this. Here's the design. A man and a woman together forever in a monogamous relationship. That's how God designed us. But our world has decided they're going to be their own Lord, their own boss, 
And they're going to determine however they want to act. And I say this in love. I'm not harping on any group. I'm just saying this. This is how God's designed this world. And I know it makes us uncomfortable because, particularly in the Bay Area, to stand up and say this, I will be accused of being hateful. And I'm not. I have gay friends. We, We won't see eye to eye on this. But we're friends. Can you be friends with them? Yes, for sure. The same way I have friends who struggle with pornography. I don't give up on them. How is that different? I know I'm so off track, but I just, I think this morning, I just had to speak to this. What about lust, evil desires, greed? Oh my gosh, like, can we just say this? This is so funny. Well, it's not funny, it's horrific. Like, like the, the church talks about sexual immorality, and we kind of pick and choose the categories that we want to harp on, and we accept the own ways that we struggle. We're like, oh, it's not that bad, right? And at the end of this list, it's like, by the way, greed too. We live in the Silicon Valley. I mean, we're like a leader. Financial wealth, right? And prosperity. How much is enough? I know I totally offended some people last week where I'm like, let's give sacrificially. I'm like, I know you just, people just want money. Um, I, we talk about a tithe. Like, hey, hey, this is where the baseline is, the starting place is. It's 10%. Like, that's what the, Jesus talks about in the scriptures. Hey, when you tithe, right? And I know there's like, there's people who are like, listen, no, tithing is, is not the thing. It's just like what it is that you give. Can I just say everyone who complains about that uh, none of them actually give 10%. I've never met somebody who's complained about that. Like, no, 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 they talk about the generosity. You just give generously. Um, I've never met a person who has that argument who gives more than 10%. I'm just saying. Um, I just wonder sometimes if we live in an indulgent Christian faith where we make up our own rules about what's acceptable so that we can have the maximum pleasure we want and still pretend like we're following Jesus. Um, if I've offended you today, I love you. But I would ask you this. Whatever it is you think, if it differs than what I just taught, would you just ask this question, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that? Because sometimes us with very good intentions, we can unintentionally do this. We can unintentionally be the Lord of our own life. We're in charge. And Paul says this, when you meet Jesus, he's not just your Savior, he's actually your Lord. So can I just ask this question? Who's the Lord of your life? Who controls your authority? Who controls what you believe? Um, If it's rules and approval, then you're living a legalistic life. Uh, If it's pleasure and self, and you're the authority of your own life, you're really the indulgent life. If it's Jesus, how does Jesus command me to live? What does the Bible say about that? That's actually the Christian life. So how would you answer that question? Um, I, I do want to show you something here, though. In the middle of this text, Paul gives us these four amazing truths about the Christian life. Because, listen, you don't have to be controlled by your pleasures, and you don't have to be controlled by rules. Now, last week, I, I read to you like 14 things that's so amazing about the gospel. He goes back to this. Look in Ch- uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He gives us these four truths that will guide your life. The first is this. Number one, you're filled with Christ. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This should blow your mind. In Christ, in this person of Jesus, 
all the fullness of God lived in this bodily form. And in Christ, if you're a Christian, you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Um, if I went to Santa Cruz and I grabbed a bucket, went in the ocean and filled up the bucket, is the bucket full of the Pacific Ocean? Is the bucket full of the Pacific Ocean? The answer is yes. There's nothing else in that bucket other than the Pacific Ocean and whatever contaminates the Pacific Ocean. But is all of the Pacific Ocean in that bucket? Of course not. That's stupid. But in the Christian life, he's saying this. You actually have, you're filled. Your life is filled with Christ if you're a follower of him. He's saying that's all you need really is you need Jesus and you need his uh, following him as your Lord and your Savior. That's what you need. But do you actually have all of the knowledge of Jesus and God in you? No, 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 you don't. God is so much bigger than you. You don't have all of his understanding. You don't have all of his power, but you certainly are filled with him is what he says. The second is this. Uh, you are dead to sin. He says in verse uh, 11, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, that's like ruled by sin, was actually put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, I know people get certain guys, particularly, I'm just saying, they get all weirded out when we start talking about circumcision in church, right? There's not a class for this afterwards, don't worry. Circumcision is the removal of a small piece of skin, right? When you became a Christian and you invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, it says your whole sinful flesh was cut off from you. Not just a piece of it, but all of it. You are free from the penalty of sin. And it means this, you're also free to say no to sin. And some of you need to hear that today because you feel trapped in sin. You're like, I, I don't have a choice anymore. I just keep doing the same thing over, over, and over and again. Can I just say this? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is such a freeing verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. But God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You have the capacity to say no. Three, third thing, you're raised to a new life. It says this, you've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, a baptism, right? You go underwater and you come back up. We say, oh, it's a symbol of the death to your old life and being raised to new life. Can I, I'm going to say this, and um, this might sound weird, but when we talk about it, it's the symbol of what God's done in you. I think there's something very spiritual that happens in that act. That when you go underwater, he's saying, I am raising you to a new life. Not just, hey, here's a higher standard. I'm actually empowering you to, to walk with me. I'm empowering you not to be controlled by indulgence or legalism. That you might be free in Christ. I'm giving you a power. The fourth thing, you're forgiven and made alive. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. He shook you and woke you up. He forgave us of all of our sins. So here it is. He woke us up to how bad our sin was. Do you remember when you got saved? That sin that you were involved in, it broke your heart. That was God waking you up. God woke you up to the meaningless of where your life was headed. God woke you up to the truth that Jesus was real and really God's son. That he really died for you, that he really loves you. God made you alive to the truth that God wants relationship with you. Now, there's those four truths. 
So let me be super clear and wrap this up right now. Um, The Christian life is this. The Christian life is a continuous relationship of intimacy and obedience with Jesus Christ. If you wonder, man, is that really the definition of the Christian life? Let me just ask you. um, This week, we just, just read John 15. Write it down. Just read John 15. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those that do not remain in me, you can do nothing. But if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. It's all about relationship. It's a continued relationship of these two things, intimacy and obedience with Jesus Christ. Um, there was actually a Harvard study. It's the most long, long, longitudinal, longest period of time study in the history of psychological studies. And they asked this question. What's the one thing that can determine whether a person lives a happy life? This study lasted more than 70 years. You know what they found out? There's a lot of material condensed into this one point. It's relationships. It's not your bank account. It's not your career. It's relationships. If you could determine one thing in your life that will determine the outcome and the happiness, it's actually relationships. And I believe that the the Bible speaks to relationship with God, relationship to your family, and relationship to the church. Um, The Christian life, it's the continuous relationship of intimacy and obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, Here's where this gets, I want to make sure there's clarity. Because you're like, I know Jesus. I've been saved by Jesus. He's my boss. But, But that whole obedience thing I really struggle with. Can I just tell you that you're amongst good friends here? We all struggle with obedience. Every single one of us. You're like, I don't struggle with obedience. I get it right. Well, yours is just pride. That's what you struggle with. Man, we all struggle. So here's, here's where I get all twisted up sometimes. I'm like, well, if I, if I struggle with sin, do, do I really, am I really saved? Am I, am I really a Christian? Let me put it this way. If you're struggling with something right now, the answer to building freedom is, in Christ is simply this, and I hope you remember this phrase. When intimacy is strong, obedience follows. When you're building health in your relationship with Jesus, obedience flows out of that. When people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm really struggling with this, and whatever that list is, it's you know, sometimes long. But they got things they struggle with, right? By the way, Paul struggled too. He's like, man, I do the things I don't want to do and the things that I should be doing and don't really do those. Like, man, Paul, the guy who was super disciplined in his life, he had struggles, right? When people come to me and talk to me, I'm struggling with this obedience. I start asking questions not about that habit. I think we've got to ask questions about the relationship that they have with Jesus. How's your time in the word? How's your time in just speaking to Jesus? How's your fellowship with other Christians? How are you doing at building a relationship of intimacy with Jesus? Because when intimacy is strong, obedience follows. You're not going to get better at breaking that habit unless you're actually replacing it with habits that are building a healthy relationship with Jesus. You with me? Maybe that's what you needed to hear today. But I want to pause for just a moment Read this final scripture to you, and then we're going to pray. So just then, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
Just as you received him as Lord, as the boss, you remember how you started the race. Continue to walk in Jesus, rooted deeply in your relationship with him and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. The same way you started this walk with Jesus, just keep walking with him and the obedience will flow out of that. So I want to do this. I just want to pray. I'm out of time. Let's have our band come out. And uh, I want you to bow your heads and ask two questions. How's your intimacy doing? And how's your obedience doing? Would you bow your heads? I just want to give you space to think about this. How are you doing at building a relationship with Jesus? And I just wonder, do you need to renew your commitment to grow in Christ? Maybe you grew up going to Christian school and you're like, I know it. It is not something that we master. It's allowing the text to master us. Allowing Jesus to continuously speak to us from his word. And having this conversation so that we're reminded that we are not a sum total of our obedience. That Christ loved us while we were sinners. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You performers, you've got to hear this. He loves you. Before you ever followed the rules, he loved you. Would you develop habits so that you can be loved by Jesus? Maybe you need to recommit to that. Maybe today you need to ask the question of obedience. If you're a follower of Christ and you're stuck, Maybe today you need to say, God, would you forgive me for that? I know I've asked it a thousand times. But God, forgive me and strengthen me to really believe that there's always a way out. If you're not a Christian, I think I've laid out pretty clearly, maybe there's a little fog in this, but hopefully it's clear, of what the Christian life is. And maybe today you need to cross the line of faith. Begin a relationship with Jesus, and it begins by asking for forgiveness. But you're not asking just to be forgiven so that he saves you. You're asking him to be the Lord, the boss of your life. Maybe some of us need to recommit to Jesus being in charge and not us making our own decisions that we're not our final authority. So God, we just come before you and uh, Lord, (laughs) forgive me if I have said anything that is self-righteous Pretending like I have it all together, God. I don't. I have moments of great sinfulness and brokenness. I have great moments of desire to follow you. I sometimes lean towards legalism, God. And other days I lean towards indulgence. But God, I believe this that we need to be connected to you and build our relationship with you, that strength and obedience flows from that. God, whatever people are dealing with today, I pray that you would speak to them personally and empower their lives, that they might walk with you. This message today, God, someone could carry this with them for the rest of their lives to make sure that they are not deceived, to keep them on course. 
God, many people in this room, we've started the race with you. We've started this Christian life. But all of us have yet to finish. And we want to finish the way we started. We want to finish with you, hand in hand, connected to you. You leading us as our Savior and Lord. And if you want that, would you simply say, amen.